0: Hi, I'm Adam Sobel and this is Deep Convection. My guest today on this special episode of the podcast is Jeffrey Shaman. Jeff is an expert in both climate science and epidemiology and he's someone whose research is extremely relevant and extremely in demand in this moment, late March, 2020. I'll introduce him properly in a few moments, but first I wanna say a few procedural things about this episode and about the podcast in general. This podcast is a vanity project. That may sound like a derogatory term, but what it means in this case is that for me and for everyone else involved in it, we're doing it only because we want to. We have no funding. We're not selling ads. We're not asking for or accepting donations even. That might change in the future, but we're not doing it now. Uh, So we're doing it just because we want to. We all have real jobs that keep us very busy, and we do this in our spare time. And as a consequence, we move very slowly. We had planned to put out 10 episodes in this first season, one every two weeks after the launch when we released two at once. And all of those interviews were recorded months ago. By the way, the dates are written on the website. I don't always put them in the recordings. So we started developing the idea for this podcast first about a year ago, and then I took the opportunities to interview people when they came up. But then it took us a while after that, working with our colleagues at Duotone Audio, to figure out how to get them edited and put out. So unlike many podcasts, this one is very much not real time. And in particular, we had the first five episodes already edited well before the coronavirus crisis hit the United States. So those first five episodes, including my introductions in them, are from the time before coronavirus, which seems almost a distant memory now. So this episode is a departure in that we're recording it and releasing it relatively quickly, As this global disaster has been engulfing us all, I've been thinking a lot about any way to contribute something, anything, to help in any tiny way. And it occurred to me to interview Jeff Shaman. So now let's say who Jeff is. Jeff Shaman is a professor in the Climate and Health Program in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia. And quoting from his webpage, his group studies the environmental determinants of health with a strong focus on infectious disease... They develop and use dynamical and statistical modeling techniques to simulate and forecast the variability, seasonality, and transmission of infectious agents. Much of this work is directed toward the epidemiological prediction of infectious disease outbreaks using dynamic models and data assimilation, i.e. Bayesian inference methods, end quote. So what that means is that Jeff makes real-time predictions of the spread of infectious diseases, including coronavirus, which makes him an incredibly important guy right now intensely in demand. His work is being looked at by the CDC, the White House, state and local governments, all kinds of media. And I'm deeply honored that he took the time to do this podcast. But also, despite his work now in epidemiology, his PhD is in climate science, and he's worked a lot in that field. So he fits right in the profile of what our podcast, Deep Convection, is supposed to be about. And his work is groundbreaking, original, interdisciplinary and as important as anybody's work on the planet could possibly be at this moment. But this is not a news program, so we didn't stick to just talking about Jeff's current work on the the coronavirus. You can see his work in a lot of other places including the New York Times and many other media outlets. So just like with other guests, we start by talking about Jeff's life and career and eventually how he got into studying respiratory viruses including his seminal work on the flu about 10 years ago where he showed that the flu peaks in winter because of low absolute humidity, which had not been understood before and is now the accepted explanation. So this is a long interview, and we get into the coronavirus gradually. We only really start talking about it explicitly around 55 minutes in or so. But I encourage you to listen to what comes before that, so you can understand the context of the work Jeff's doing now and what he has to say. A technical note, uh, this was the first remote interview I've done for this podcast. We decided not to do them originally, but it was necessary now for obvious reasons, since we're all socially isolated. So we had some technical difficulties. Uh, Jeff was recording himself on his phone, and we lost the last 20 minutes of the interview that we recorded last Wednesday, March 17th. But Jeff kindly agreed to do it again uh, to recover some of that material. So we had another interview today as I record this, Tuesday, March 24th. And this also allowed us to bring things bit up to date since a lot had happened in the last uh, few days so the last 29 minutes or so were recorded six days after the first hour and a quarter or so also as a result of this being my first remote interview uh, the sound isn't what it would be if we could have done it in person we had a few technical issues which our very talented sound engineer at duotone Chrissy Lassiter was able to mostly fix with her amazing sound wizardry but you still hear a little echo sometimes, and a few times sounds that Jeff or I made get briefly muted, which makes the conversation sound a little weird in those moments. But overall, I think it's perfectly good enough to be listenable, and I hope you will listen to it. Okay, let me shut up now, and let's get to my conversation with Jeff Shaman. Why don't we start from the beginning? Uh, where are you from, Jeff?
1: All right, from the very beginning. I was born in, uh, uh, what is it called? McGee and something McGee's Women's Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in nineteen sixty eight. Okay. So um almost. I uh I grew up there and then I moved uh, when I was eight years old to outside Philadelphia. I really liked Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. Growing up was not as fun, but of course I went into teenage years there and that couldn't have all its its usual trials and tribulations. Um I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And I uh, studied biology with a minor in math. Um, I was really non-committal about biology. It could have been anthropology or uh, English or psychology. I was thinking about a lot of different topics, but very late to decide, to be perfectly honest.
0: How did you get interested in science in the first place?
1: uh, I was always interested in science. I mean, I was pretty good at it, and it was something that I, I really liked... Um, I don't think I applied myself in a really dedicated way towards it. Um, but you know, it came naturally enough and I I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed I enjoy factual information, I enjoy that aspect of there being some objective truth that we can try to find. You know, that's that's something that I I value, uh, and it can sometimes be maddening because the world doesn't always seem to value that, right? I feel you. And, uh, but I, so I, I wound up majoring in biology and um, the reality was I, I didn't, I don't know if I really liked the biology at the time. As a matter of fact, I know I didn't. I, I mean, I, I was sort of moving towards ecology, but I, I found it a little frustrating because the point of it didn't always seem relevant to me i wanted something that had some impact on the world around me i guess and you know there were people who were doing like ecological physiology that study the you know the thermal regulatory patterns of lizards you know and yeah. uh I, I for some people that's really interesting and it certainly can be a very important scientific topic but for me it kind of left me cold no pun yeah. intended um and so after I got out of college, I really didn't quite know what I wanted to do with it. And I, uh, so I worked for a while for a former professor of mine doing some field research. And I mucked around doing some things, didn't really go anyplace, thought about writing for a bit. And then ultimately I got a job uh, working in an immunology lab. And um, Really? Yeah, yeah. I did that at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And okay. we were chasing a gene that was had appeared in these cell lines and I think even knockout mice that would seem to disrupt the class two uh component of the major histocompatibility complex. And don't ask me to go into details about it right now <laughs> because you're asking me to really go back into the reaches of my mind right now. But I wouldn't we understand were, it anyway. Yeah, yeah, well I don't know if I understand it anymore anyway. Uh, But um, we were one of a number of labs that was chasing this. And um, ultimately, we did find it first, which meant a high profile paper. Um, But the reality was, I I didn't really enjoy the lab work, I found it, you know, kind of nonstop, I found it a bit tedious. Uh, the, The environment I was working in had no windows. So you know, it was long days throwing around mutagens and radioactive isotopes. And at some point, I was like, why am I doing this? this is, I don't think this is what I want to do. And right. so um, I grew my hair long. I went on a road trip to Alaska. I came back. I kind of looked like Jesus. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I decided at that point, because while I had been working at the lab, I had, I'd always done music, as, as you had also. And I decided to um, take up some singing lessons. I'd never really sung. And Wait, so out, what
0: kind of music did you do before that?
1: I did, uh, I played the clarinet and saxophone and some piano oh, okay. and dabbled in some other instruments. I did a lot of orchestral music. I also played in jazz bands and the like. You know, in college, I just, we screwed around in a New Orleans-style traditional band that we put together and just playing stuff like that.
0: Okay. Um,
1: and, uh, but... When I started singing, I decided, you know, the reality is my my mom said to me, you know, because I was complaining how I wasn't doing anything but working and I had no outlets. She said, well, why don't you take some singing lessons? You got two good notes and the rest sounds like crap. Why don't you see if there's something there? <laughs> and so um, I found a singing teacher. He didn't know what to do with me. So he sent me to his singing teacher. Uh, and, you know, I have a very loud voice when I sing. I mean, it's like it has aspirations of being operatic. Okay. So um, I had done that, and then when I got back from this trip to Alaska, having quit the job, I said, I floated the idea to my teacher and my family that, you know, maybe I should pursue this singing thing. And I thought, in particular, the teacher, my teacher was going to be like, no, come on, don't, don't bother. But he started naming all these conservatories I should audition for. He thought it was a good idea. Wow. So, um, so I did that, and uh, the first time I really ever sang in public was when I auditioned for one of them, which was the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, didn't go so well. The second time was when I auditioned for Peabody, which is in Baltimore, and that one went much better. I got in, I even got a scholarship. And, wow. um So I studied opera for two, three, four years, really, full-time, and I worked side gigs doing opera choruses i was a member of the union i did small regional um opera company stuff but i did major opera choruses and such and um you know it wasn't progressing the way i wanted it to you know i, I wanted to sing on the stage of the Met if i was going to do it and yeah. um i couldn't really get a handle on it it was actually making me pretty unhappy and i looked around it at uh, other people who were twice my age doing exactly what I was doing, which was singing in a professional opera choruses and church gigs and living hand-to-mouth. And I said, you know, something, I, I don't want this to be me in 25 years. Um, yeah. So I said, all right, let's go to plan B. Let's try going back to graduate school. Let's try this science thing again, but let's try it maybe from a different perspective. Um, biology kind of frustrated me. On a couple counts, they didn't do so well with the immunology, and I found the ecology less than motivating. Um, maybe we should try something that's more physically science-based. So I started applying to graduate schools, and I got into Columbia's Department of Earth Environmental Sciences, uh, right. which was, in some ways, somewhat remarkable that I got in. But that's another story for another day. But um, I got there and then I started working and gravitated towards uh, climate, atmospheric science and hydrology. But all along the way, I wanted to marry it to the biology I'd done before, because on certain levels, things that impact human health really have relevance to me. They're really motivating. So my dissertation wound up being this interdisciplinary focus on how hydrologic and meteorologic variability affect mosquitoes and some of the mosquito-borne pathogens that they transmit. Particular, I looked at um, St. Louis encephalitis virus and West Nile virus. West Nile virus emerged in New York City um, when I was in graduate school. So, and your of, advisor was Mark Kane, right? My advisor was Mark Kane for this. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, you know, I had I worked a lot with a, a hydrologist named Mark Stiglitz who went on to Georgia Tech. I worked a lot with Steve right. Zebiak. He was on my committee. I sat yeah. in on a class uh, taught by Adam Sobel. Um, <laughs>
0: That's all right. Mm-hmm. I knew that we overlapped when I first got there. was about when you were finishing. Yeah, yeah it was about I, my
1: third or fourth year, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
0: you started at what age? You must have been...
1: I, I was about to about, turn 30.
0: About yeah. to turn 30. Yeah, I was just going to say that your whole experience with the music the and everything sounds, sounds so much, so like, much like mine, except that this type of music, music was different, and you from a from got a little part further part. with it than I did. But the whole psychological process and everything was like... So much like my biography. So anyway. Oh well, it's good. Uh, I,
1: I thought you might uh, relate. I, I wasn't. I wasn't quite sure. I knew. I knew about your musical history, but I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. That it maps onto my own.
0: Yeah, except Norman. No Did you? I just have one more music question before we get to the mosquitoes again. Were you an opera fan before you started singing opera?
1: You know, that's that's a really interesting thing. Uh, the answer is not particularly, and uh, oh, okay. I always liked. Luciano Pavarotti's voice. His, I just thought, was one of the most gorgeous sounds I've ever heard. And I still do. I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Um, But I wasn't that interested in the canon. I found a lot of it overly dramatic. I found the singing sounded, you know, I I couldn't quite get into it. And then (laughs) when I started trying to do it, you know, you start listening to it and doing it and you understand... The depth and complexity and then you also have a drive to try to make it work on your own you know to get yeah. it to work for yourself so you become really lasered into what makes it good and what makes it bad and then the other thing I remember is I remember when I got to Peabody the first time I heard just a recital in a relatively small hall by a good soprano which was basically day two that I got there and it was. It's so powerful when you hear a good human voice with that kind of power, in a, yeah. an immediate setting. I'm not talking a small room. I mean, it was, you know, a hall that could hold 200, 300 people, but it is. It's so impactful. It just smacks you, um, yeah. and it hits you viscerally. And you know, from then on, you know, I, 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 I really loved it. And then, you know, of course, I grew to hate it because it was a source of frustration. There are things right. about it. You like you go through all these cycles of what, what you can yeah. and can't do, uh, appreciate about it, and it's all wrapped up in your own right. psychology and neurosis.
0: I remember all that. Yeah, all that, that part is what I identify with. But okay, so, that, so then you, at, at getting close to 30, you go to grad school, you study mosquitoes and climate with Mark Kane. You know, I interviewed Mark for this podcast. We'll release it later, and a couple of his other former students as well. So I mean, one thing that's kind of special about your story is not just that you had this you went through this process to get where you wanted to study this thing but that you had invi- found an advisor who was not only a truly great scientist with a you know a, a unbelievable track record of the absolute highest order and a, and a, a, who's also a good mentor but also somebody who had such an expansive vision that he was willing to entertain such a thesis I mean not too many scientists in the field would have Known how to advise a student on mosquitoes. And well, yeah,
1: I, and you know, I think he recognized that that what I was doing was risky, and he trusted me enough that I would, uh, you know, marshal myself and keep going. I, I think there was sort of a recognition on his part that because I was an older graduate student, I, I was sort of more self-directed and determined to complete a dissertation. I wasn't just going to meander and waffle, uh, and so that. Doing something interdisciplinary, which is a risk in and of itself, and I can get to that later, because then people from the outside, they look at you, and they don't know what you do. You know, I, I yeah. had this yeah. problem for a very, very long time. I still have this problem where people, they don't actually know what I do. They think I do one thing, and then they find out, oh, you do that. I didn't really know that. Um, right. And, you know, I used to be, when I was in graduate school, I found that people didn't collaborate with me unless I instig- in- initiated the collaborations, because to the climate scientists, I was the guy who was out there collecting mosquitoes and doing stuff with that. And to the entomology people and epidemiologists, I was the guy who could get them some climate data. So it's kind of useless from all their perspectives because they didn't (laughs) actually know what I did, you know, and they they pigeonholed me into the other thing. Um, anyhow, yeah. So, uh,
0: So West Nile, you were doing, so you're doing your thesis on climate in West Nile, and I forget what the other one was. Oh,
1: St. Louis encephalitis virus. And, and, you know, and yes, and Mark really gave me the opportunity to to work on this and pursue what was really an interdisciplinary uh, dissertation. Uh, He cautioned me. He said, you know, the exact thing I said to you, that people are going to have a hard time knowing what to do with you when you get out, um, because you really are... You're multidisciplinary, and people are going to look at you and think you're a little anemic in any of the bona fides that they may or may not appreciate, and yeah. uh, that that may get in your way a little bit. And you know, he was right, and that that is, that is true. But you know, it's okay. Um, so I did it my turned dis- out all right. What do you say? I I did all right. Ultimately, <laughs> I did all right. So I I did this um, dissertation there, and um, ultimately, when I graduated, I. I Got a postdoctoral fellowship, you know, the, one of the noble, global climate change fellowships, and right. I went to uh, Harvard, and I was there for a couple of years, and I worked with a a bit with a medical entomologist there, but mostly I was housed in Earth and Planetary Sciences uh, and worked with Ellie Zipperman,
0: and I oh, did some okay. straight yeah, yeah,
1: climate, right, right. yeah, I did some straight climate research even, and um, but also continued working on this this intersection between climate and health. Um, yeah. So after a couple of years of that, I was on the job market. And to be perfectly blunt, uh, you know, I, I sent out applications. There weren't opportunities at that time for interdisciplinary climate and health positions at universities. Yeah. Um, and I didn't get any interviews. Um, yeah. And so what did happen is I applied for a position at Oregon State University. Yeah. And they, um, they looked at me, my application, and they flagged it. They told me this afterwards. And they said, well, we can't hire him for what we posted, but maybe we can make a position for him. So they invited me out to give an interview, and I gave a couple of talks because I have these different disciplines. And they did yeah. make a job offer to me. And it was that or stay at Harvard, and I decided I wanted to go out and try the West
0: Yeah. I remember at one point meeting you out there because I've yeah, been out there a few times. And while you were there, if my memory serves... You continued the health thing, but also did quite a bit of straight climate science for however many years? How many years were you there?
1: I was there for five and a half years. So yeah, I I continued doing, I did some straight climate science, continued doing some of the stuff. I started as uh, a postdoc and picked up some new stuff. Um, And I continued working on mostly mosquito-borne diseases. Um, But while I was out there, I actually made the jump into working on respiratory diseases
0: okay and, uh, yeah
1: and so that that actually was it's an interesting i think it's an interesting story we'll let your listeners decide right um but please tell it <laughs> get to the point jeff
0: no no well, no i want to hear the story
1: well the 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 thing is i had spent a lot of time looking at how hydrologic variability uh the the wetting and the drying of the land surface affect mosquito-borne diseases and one of the things that i found which was a really cool a really cool phenomenon is that it, very often drought is a trigger for the types of diseases like West Nile virus. So West Nile virus is a, it's what's called an arthropod-borne virus. It's transmitted by mosquitoes, and it is, has a zoonosis, meaning that the natural reservoir of it appears to be birds. So when West Nile virus came over, you may remember they were talking about how all these crows are dying from it. And that no. was the initial pulse of it going through the populations of crows as it moved across the United States. Other birds are also affected, not as badly, let's say, as the crows. But the natural transmission cycle of West Nile virus is that an infectious mosquito bites a bird like a crow. When a mosquito bites an organism, the first thing it does is it spits in them. And the spit is an anticoagulant, prevents the blood from clotting, so it can drink freely. Uh, But the spit is where all these pathogens have learned to take advantage of it. So if a mosquito has a virus, it's in its salivary glands. And when it spits in you, it's basically acting like a hypodermic needle and injecting you with the virus. Mm. So the bird gets infected and then it goes through its infection process. It develops a viremia because the virus is replicated in its body. And if if another mosquito comes along that's not been infected, that's naive and takes a blood meal from that infected bird with the viremia, it can pick up the infection.
0: Viremia just means it's re- replicating the virus in its own... So the
1: virus is replicated in the body, and yep. there's enough of the virus in its peripheral blood system that it can deliver an infectious dose to the mosquito. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. So um, the mosquito that then acquires it can then have it replicated in its body, it goes to the salivary glands, and the whole thing can get repeated again. That's how yeah. West Nile virus... Uh, is perpetuated in this country. As a matter of fact, we're never going to get rid of West Nile virus in our country unless we can figure out a way to keep birds and mosquitoes apart, which is really not going to happen, right? Right, Humans are just dead-end hosts to that, and um, meaning that we can get bitten by an infectious mosquito, and it can make us very ill, and we can even die from it. People do every year. But we don't run a high enough viremia. We don't have enough of that virus floating around in our peripheral blood system to pass it back to the mosquito. So right. the, via, the transmission cycle ends with us. So we're not that yeah. important to it, but it's a health consequence nonetheless. So anyhow, sure. we looked at how drought and wetting and rainfall events affect the whole transmission dynamics of this because mosquitoes are very sensitive to ambient conditions. They can't reg- regulate their internal uh, conditions. And they... Um, uh, they're, they're sensitive to humidity, which incites them to go seek blood meals and lay their eggs, which is whole part of this whole cycle that involves them biting hosts. Um, yeah. And their first three life stages, uh, egg, pupae, and larvae, uh, actually egg, larvae, pupae, are are aquatic. So they rely on puddling and ponding at the surface. So we yeah. were using hydrology models and satellite estimates and meteorological variables to try to understand the transmission dynamics of these diseases that are that are like West Nile virus, and we're making some really interesting headway and some results and modeling it, etc. I had gone when I was in a postdoc to look at, uh, to a. I was invited to the Radcliffe Institute where they were having a two-day symposium on the seasonality of influenza. So influenza in temperate regions, we get it in the wintertime. And this is something that's been known noted for 2,500 years, going way back to the Greeks. Um, but... We don't know why. We don't know if it has something to do with the fact that in the wintertime, people are indoors more, they're crowded together, and that facilitates the transmission of the virus. If it has to do with the fact that in the wintertime, sun's at a lower angle in the sky, uh, day length is shorter, consequently, we don't have as much uh, vitamin D and melatonin production, our immune system is suppressed. So we might also also be more susceptible to infection. And when we get infection, we may not be able to deal with it as well. So we run a higher viremia again, there's the word, and shed it into the environment more. We may be more contagious because of that. And the third has to do with environmental conditions. So I walked out of that symposium and I thought, well, maybe I should do some stuff with the flu. And when I was in Oregon, at Oregon State University, I had met with the state epidemiologist. They have a state epidemiologist. His name is Melvin Cohn. And I talked to him a couple of times. I said, you know, I'd love to get a hold of some of the influenza data that you might have at the state level and see how meteorological conditions are affecting it. And he said, okay, never really got around to it. But at one point, he sent me this paper that had come out from these virologists at Mount Sinai here in New York, who were studying flu in an animal model, these guinea pigs. And they'd shown that the guinea pigs was a good animal model for studying human influenza. And they'd set up this chamber experiment where they had taken eight guinea pigs at a time. They would infect four of them with the flu. They would stack Mm -hmm. them in this vertical chamber, one on each level, infected. And on that same level, one more that was susceptible. They're all in separate cages, so they can't touch each other. And they Mm -hmm. would set it there for 72 hours at fixed temperature and relative humidity conditions And at the end of that time, they would see how many of the exposed or susceptible guinea pigs had actually come down with the flu, transmitted from the other ones.
0: Uh,
1: And what they had found is that at colder temperatures and at lower relative humidity conditions, they were seeing weakly statistically significant effects. They had done it 20 times with different combinations of temperature and relative humidity. Well, I read that and I was saying, I immediately thought, well, why are they looking at relative humidity and why are they varying the temperature at the same time? thermodynamics, Clausius-Clapeyron equation, you monkey around with the temperature and the relative humidity, you're actually not accounting for the actual amount of water vapor in the air. And maybe there's a relationship there that's more uh, acutely evident if you look at some measure like specific humidity or vapor pressure or absolute humidity.
0: So let's just pause for a second in case we have non-experts. This is the one part of the science that I can uh, explain. So the, the, um, the specific humidity is how much water vapor in the air. And the and the relative humidity is that divided by the maximum possible, the saturation value, which is dependent on temperature. So, the same specific humidity gives you a high relative humidity at low temperature and a low relative humidity at high temperature. So they were sort of. Uh, so you were saying they should look at the actual amount of water vapor in the air instead of the relative humidity, which is how much that is that divided by how much there could be. So take out the temperature part of it. In other words.
1: Now, that doesn't mean that relative humidity can't be very important for many biological systems. It is. But I look at it, and I was curious about this, and I said, well, why not look at some measure of the mass of water vapor that's in the air, or at least the partial pressure of it? Um, and, and you know, just to add on, I often just say, say to people when I'm speaking generally about this, you know, if you want to change the relative humidity in a closed room, you've got two options. You can humidify or dehumidify it, which Puts in or takes out water vapor from the air which will change the relative humidity or you can go over to the thermostat and play around with the temperature Which changes the capacity of the air for having water vapor. I won't say the word hold because I know you'll sneer at me if I say that Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right, that was a bad inside joke anyhow um, so so when I did the analysis they had their data there it was much more statistically significantly related to absolute humidity. So based on that, I said, all right, well, what's going on here? And they'd had two hypotheses as to why this might be. One, that when you have drier relative humidity conditions or colder temperatures, uh, you're going to have less aerosolized virus. In other words, you expel the virus from the host, in this case, a guinea pig, and there is a a distribution of droplet sizes. And some of them are going to settle down because they're big and goopy, And others are going to be tiny and remain aerosolized on the turbulence because they're going to evaporate in the subsaturated air. Um, And the rate at which that happened might be modulated by temperature or humidity. So we built a model to show that that's really not what was going on. That wasn't what's driving it. It wasn't consistent with their Mm -hmm. data really at all. The second hypothesis is that Well, maybe the virus survives longer for reasons we don't know. Something going on within those droplets, maybe it's pH changes or salt toxicity or osmotic gradients ruptures the virus or causes it to activate prematurely or something like that. We don't still know this. Um, But there were lots of survival experiments for influenza that have been conducted, published all the way back to the 1940s. And influenza was only discovered, it was only identified in the 1930s. And in those experiments, what they do is they culture the virus and then they'd atomize it. They'd aerosolize it in what's called a Goldberg drum. And then they'd sample it at intervals and see how much of the virus remained viable over time. And they would do this at different temperature and always relative humidity conditions. Nobody had bothered to test absolute humidity. So -hmm. I went combing through all the literature and there's, you know, 50 years of experiments on this. And I found one paper that had tested both different temperature and different relative humidity conditions, and actually had their data in the paper so that I could actually back-calculate what the effect was. And when I did that, Mm -hmm. the one-hour survival of influenza, 90% of the variability was explained by absolute humidity. I mean, it was just incredible on this beautiful log-linear relationship, and a a gorgeous exponential. So the relationship is that in the wintertime, it's much colder and the air is much drier. That dry air that we have, that low absolute humidity, occurs both indoors and outdoors. Because the way we manage our indoor rooms where we spend ninety percent of our time is we suck the air in from outside and we heat it. We don't add water yeah. vapor to it. So right. it's just basically highly collinear, covariable with the outdoor air is what's going on with the indoor air's humidity.
0: Yeah.
1: It's minimal in wintertime. That favors the survival and the transmission of the virus. And then we were able from that, by the way, I did that entire study with the model, the microphysical model of it, the statistical analysis, the literature, writing the whole paper into what was essentially the published version in a week. I've never worked that that fast before. And uh, because I was so jazzed by it. And then it, it, it took me like eight months to get a journal to even consider it for review. That was, that was the beauty of it there, but that's another story. Ultimately, it got out in a very nice journal in PNAS, so there's no, no complaints there. Um, but, uh, you know, it was interdisciplinary. At one point, I in the middle of this, after it had been rejected without review by multiple journals, I sent it to the guy who had organized that that seminar over at, at, uh, at Harvard's Radcliffe Institute. And I said, you know, Wrote this paper, um well, let me know what you think of it. That's all I said. And he writes me back in an hour and he's like rhapsodic. He's like, this actually explains it. This is incredible. <laughs> this is amazing. And I'm like, yes, but I can't get it reviewed. I, I mean, I can't <laughs> even get past the editors to get it reviewed. And he said, well, that's because they don't get it because you're drawing on multiple disciplines. That's a problem with uh, sometimes you can run yeah. into, obviously. Um, yeah. But ultimately it, it was published... And it really started me down the track of really working very heavily in respiratory viruses. I I started modeling them. I started looking not just at the environmental conditions that are driving them, but just modeling them in general. Then we decided to try to, why don't we try to use the methods of numerical weather prediction?
0: So wait, wait, let, let, I, I want to get into that, but that's that's a kind of a, a whole new topic. So before we get into that, so the the explanation you came up with that lower absolute humidity in the air is what causes flu to be... Uh, more uh, prevalent and and more contagious in winter. Um, that Was that accepted by the community pretty quickly once, it, once you got it published? Is it the accepted explanation now?
1: Well, you know, it came out in a high-profile journal. So there's always a little bit of groupthink that goes on where if it's in a high-profile journal, it must be true, obviously. Not everybody conforms to that. Um, But since then, there have been enormous number of tests that have focused on absolute humidity, and you see the relationship almost all the time. And this goes from everything from epidemiological scales to looking at influenza and pneumonia mortality to looking at rates of uh, the onset of flu seasons to detailed statistical models of it, to dynamic models of it, to um, further experiments of the survival of it on surfaces and aerosolized so it's come out over and over again yeah
0: yeah and so and the other thing that i mean i remember when this came out because i mean i i I don't follow this topic but i knew you so i remember when it you know when it came out and my perception was i mean as far as the interdisciplinary problem and having trouble getting taken seriously that that this kind of solved that problem for you i mean you sort of became famous then and then it was like more possible to do this work and get it uh you know keep it going
1: It, it opened up a field of collaboration for me with people who were working in respiratory uh, viruses and trying to understand their transmission, their epidemiology, their characteristics, what makes pandemics, et cetera. I mean, it, it took place over time, but it did take away some of the isolation I had. And also there was this starting, you know, people, there's still a field of climate and health that is burgeoning and, and, and growing. And there are positions available now in universities that specifically for people who are doing that now. Um, not just at Columbia, but many universities now. And when I was applying for positions, you know, what, what is that, 15 years ago? That wasn't the case. So for people who are looking at the environmental determinants of disease, and not just infectious disease, non-communicable disease, allergens, mental health, um, all sorts of issues that You can find opportunities to do research now. The funding is still a little bit tricky, to be perfectly honest, um, because the NIH has not been that supportive of it because they're very much genetics, 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 uh, and then maybe some molecular biology. Um, But uh, And the NSF won't touch it because it has health and they're like, go talk to the NIH. They have all the money.
0: Right, right. Well, I, I would love to, but I, I think we should get to more important things. So the so but just to get back to your sort of trajectory, so okay, so this happens, it becomes famous, and you were about to say that you start predicting it using weather methods, but at what point in this did you leave Oregon and come back to Columbia? Or are you still at Oregon when this all happens? I was
1: I think it might have been before the paper even came out, this first flu paper. I think I was at AGU in San Francisco. And I was talking to Alicia Karspek who you know as well. She was a graduate yeah. student of Mark's as well. We were office mates. And yeah. she was at NCAR at that point, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And she did a lot of work with their ocean models developing advanced data simulation methods, which are ways of, of optimizing your model given uh, observations of the system. And for ocean models and weather models and climate models, it can be, these are very large cumbersome hard problems to implement very often uh, and they have to come up with new algorithms all the time as they do in statistics as well um, and I was telling her about these results and I was telling her we're now trying to model the seasonality of it and I would really love to do some prediction of this and she looked at me and she said this sounds like a wonderful problem for data assimilation and I said all right let's talk about it because I knew she did it but I wasn't really fully right. getting it you know. And so we talked about it, and then we said, all right, let's put together a proposal to do this. And um, we applied to like a foundation, didn't get it, and then we applied to the NIH and NSF had this joint program in mathematical biology at the time, and we applied there, and we got it. Now, we got it just as I had moved to Columbia. So so I got it after I arrived at Columbia.
0: So it's maybe like 10 years ago or a little...
1: Uh, 2011 is when the grant was awarded, so So, yeah. Pretty close.
0: And, and so just to repeat, so data simulation is like you're trying to do a forecast so you have a model that simulates the behavior of the system, whether it's the weather or a, or a contagious disease, but the model's always at least to some extent wrong. And so as you're doing the calculation, you have observations, You, you can actually measure what's happening in real life if you're making a real life prediction and you feed that data into the model to sort of correct it. But because the data and the model are always a little inconsistent, it's a whole big math problem of exactly how to do that. And so you were in weather prediction. This has been done for many decades, and we know a lot about how to do it. And you were sort of the first to apply that to predicting uh, infectious disease spread. Is that correct?
1: Yes. At the same time that we were doing this, actually, a number of other groups also started doing it. It was really interesting. Okay. Right around 2010, there was a paper that came out where these statisticians in Singapore had applied it to the 2009 pandemic. In, uh, in a very nice way. And then our first paper came out in 2012, as did a number of other groups, uh, some Russians, a group in Australia, a group in Chicago. Um, but we kept going with it. All those other groups just did it as a one-off, and we wanted to actually try to implement it so it could actually be used and not just be an academic curiosity. I mm-hmm. wanted to see it integrated into the CDC's thinking. And, yeah. and it, was int- it was interesting because um, that same collaborator at Harvard who ran the Radcliffe Institute, whom I said the paper to, his name is Mark Lipsitch. Um He and I went oh, okay. down to the CDC at one point, and this is when um, I was starting to work up our first forecasting model. And I gave a presentation to them with some preliminary results, and I said to the head of surveillance there, you know, this is what we're doing and trying to do, and she listens to me for about 20 minutes, and at the end she says, you know, why would I need any of this? I know when the flu is going to peak three weeks before it does. And I didn't have an answer for that. But that's actually probably the same type of thing that happened in the 50s when they first developed numerical weather prediction. You had all these synopticians who would look at it and be like, why do I need this? I know already know how to predict the weather, right? right. Um, and so it was interesting, though, because we put out a first retrospective study and then we, I decided, you know something, let's just do real time forecasts and see how we do. And so huh. I started generating real-time forecasts during the 2012-13 season in the United States. Did it for 108 different cities.
0: For the and, flu. I'm sorry? For the flu, right?
1: For the flu, yeah. And every week I would do a write-up of its summary, with some graphics and information, and I would send it to that person at the, C- at the CDC. And halfway through the season, she wrote me and she said, keep these coming, they're interesting. And so mm. I kept doing it and then we wrote up what we did and it, it was much better than what you'd get from simple statistical methods, historical expectance, any sort of climatological approach, if you will. The following season, two days before Thanksgiving, the CDC announced a predict influenza challenge where they wanted mm. anyone to come in and be able to come and provide weekly predictions of influenza. It had actually mm. started to uh, enter their thoughts and how they were gonna deal with it. And it's very interesting because in, in the 2009 influenza pandemic, it was a little more challenging to get the directors, the heads of the divisions at the CDC to listen to modeling and to get government yeah. officials to look at the modeling results. And there was no forecasting at all. There were some projections, but there wasn't anything that really said what was going to happen. Um, and so they've, over the last, they've continued by the way, this challenge every year since Uh, More and more groups have been involved in it. We've developed these, you know, multi-model ensembles across groups. People bring in purely statistical methods, dynamic methods, all sorts of ways, wisdom of the crowd approaches where experts just draw lines and you see what, you know, the Mm. consensus is. And um, it's really advanced the field, which has grown considerably such that forecasting an infectious disease is a regular thing now. For, he, I was oh, oh, I was going sorry, to go say ahead. that a year and a half ago, I was invited down to the CDC for a pandemic exercise that they were having. They hadn't done this really, I think, before. And they invited me and two other forecasters down. And um, what they did is they had a mock-up of a pandemic that had emerged. And it was yeah. days 40, 41, and 42 in real time. And they had 400 people at the CDC drop everything and deal with it. And they had in that needle shortages, mask shortages, vaccine that didn't exist, uh, press conferences, uh, a really tough mock press corps asking radically different questions each time. And even the director participated in it for one of the days. And it was actually very gratifying because even the director and all the division's heads, they constantly wanted to know what the models and the forecast had to say. It was very mm. much integrated into their thinking, uh, mm. which was nice to see because you have to bound these things. You have to really understand the scope of the threat you may be dealing with. And particularly when you want to implement any sort of intervention, a model, even though it's highly imperfect, is your only means of testing it before you really do that intervention at yeah. large scale. Yeah. You know, Other than, of course, clinical trials for safety and for vaccines, which we have to do.
0: Yeah, that's true of so many kinds of models from, uh, you know, simulation is what you do when you either can't do the experiment, if it's uneth- unethical to do the experiment, you know, physically impossible, whatever. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, um, I don't want to get too technical, but is it possible to say just a few words on not just the data, sim- not on the data simulation, but on what's actually in the model? I mean, what are these, what are these equations look like? Or what are the, what is the model? In their simplest in
1: form, they're almost laughably simple, simple, Simple. There we go. They're laughably simple. Um, they have a nonlinearity in them. There's nonlinearities in the model, which is why using a dynamic model is attractive, because nonlinear systems without some sort of data assimilation are very hard to predict. Um, at the simplest case, it's what's called a compartmental model, where you could take a, a local population like New York City and you would just divide it into maybe three classes. Those people who are currently susceptible, those people who are currently infected, and those people who have recovered from mm-hmm. the virus. Yeah. And you then have uh, probabilities of transition between those compartments that guide yeah. the rates at which the flow takes place. Now, yeah. not to get technical, the nonlinearity is getting from susceptible to infected. You have to encounter infected people to become right. susceptible. In this compartmental model, it's idealized so that everybody's perfectly mixed with everyone else, which we know is wrong. They're not right. nearly as as realistic, you could argue, as many physical models. Yeah. Now, that's, that's one end of the spectrum of the type of model we're talking about. The other end of the spectrum, and some people use these for forecasting, and they don't work quite as well for forecasting, is to have what are called agent-based or individual-based models. And in right, that, right. you would for New York City, you'd have 8.4 million people in there. You'd give them right. all daily routines of what they're doing that replicate rates of using subways and buses and, trans- and commuting and, and transit, and they go to work and they go home and all this other stuff that would go on, and you let the, the pathogen pass between people associated on the contacts that they're running into. And you'd have to try to account for the fact that for something like flu, people don't need to be in the same room at the same time in order to transmit it, because I right. can come into a room, fill the air and cover the surfaces of virus, and then somebody else can walk in six hours later and get it from me, and we never
0: met. Yeah. Right. I want to ask I want to get into that later about the coronavirus, but so basically it's it's like you have 8 million little individual atoms that you represent explicitly and they're moving around and they have some probability of running into each other with some distance and with some radius in space and time and given that some probability of passing it on and then you're just crunching those numbers. And you of course am I correct you don't model anything but the the uh, inf- infection itself. You don't model what happens to those people. I mean, how sick they get well, or anything you like can. that. This you is- can.
1: You can model that some of them wind up in the hospital, some of them wind oh, okay. up in the ICU, and some of them die if you want to. Those, those you can model in both forms as you okay. add complexity to it. I should just say that you know, they're not billiard balls within that agent-based model because they have, they have routines. They have life courses that are assigned to them. Somebody may be stay at home, somebody, kids may go to school, people may go to work on weekends, they may have different schedules. So everybody has their own schedule. Um, it's computationally expensive. Um, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of them for a lot of purposes, but I think that in some instances they can be very, very helpful and insightful. And I'm glad that there's a community of people that are doing that. We tend to favor taking those compartmental models and then expanding mm. on them as we see fit. We can add a lot sense. of complexity to them locally. We can string them together between populations and then it becomes what's called a metapopulation model where you could run the entire United States at the county scale or 3000 plus counties and they're all structured together. Now, one of the other things that's really critical about trying to do this forecasting is that it's an inference problem as well. So yeah. uh, I don't wanna to get too technical here, but like when you're doing, Uh, weather prediction, when you're using these data simulation techniques to bring the data in and optimize the model so it doesn't run off the rails, you're trying to constrain what are called the state variables. That is, the things that are indicative of temperature and pressure and wind speed and humidity in the air and all those variables, you're trying to get those to be aligned. But within the models, there are also these parameters that have to do with fixed conditions and relationships that we know or have estimated physically. And because it's physics, they're immutable. They don't change. We don't have that in our systems for infectious disease. Those parameters are mutable, they change. They change every season with new flu strains because they're more or less transmissible. They can change because people's immunity are different. They can change because people's behavior changes. So because of that, we always are having to estimate the parameters as well as the state variables in some
0: fashion. Right. So when you're doing the forecast, part of the forecast is that you have to know what's happening today. I mean, how many people are infected and so on. And you know, in the case of coronavirus, for example, you don't know that very accurately because there's not enough testing. So you're trying to estimate at the same time, you're trying to make a forecast. You're also trying to estimate what's happening today. And you're also trying to estimate at the same time The model itself, I mean, the key parameters that the model needs to know to do all this. So you have one big math problem where you have some data, you have a model that you start with, and you try to get the best answer you can that sort of fits the data you have. Is that sort of a fair? That's uh, totally uh, fair.
1: I mean, we're trying to, in essence, find and align a solution that will be a combination of initial conditions and parameters that allows the model to simulate with the best accuracy through, you know, goodness of fit, log likelihood, something like that, the past all the way up to the present. And if we can align it that way and estimate the conditions of the present as best we can, then we're going to be able to forecast what happens in the future better.
0: Right. And some parts of the model are, are as you say, are, I mean, some parts of the model come from, presumably from lab experiments and things. I mean, there are some things you put in that are based on clinical data or, or past uh, epidemics. So in some sense, the exercise you're doing is trying to take all the information you can and come up with the single explanation that fits it all the best. That's what the modeling exercise really is. It's, it's the most comprehensive view of the situation. So, I mean, so before we get into applying this to coronavirus, which I want to do soon, um, but in in between, you've then you did started with the flu, but then you've done it with other respiratory diseases as, as well. You've done this exercise for SARS and H one N one, right? And Uh, Not SARS,
1: but we did this for H1N1. We've done it for respiratory syncytial virus, rhinovirus, some other ones. Um, We've done it for non-respiratory viruses. We built a system for diarrheal disease in Botswana. Um, We did it for Ebola in West Africa during the West African Ebola outbreak. I remember that. That was very challenging. Yeah, that was very challenging. Uh, Not a lot of good information there and a disease we hadn't looked at and for which there weren't really historical records to work from so uh it was a little bit like flying blind and it was interesting because when i was first approached and asked to do it i said i don't want to do this because what if i give the wrong information and i kept saying that until a colleague of mine sat me down and said but they have no information whatsoever if you can give them anything (laughs) anything bounded so that they can figure out you know how many how many gloves they're going to need how many mobile clinics they might need to build it's going to be better than giving them nothing they have they don't know what's going on so yeah. we started to work on that and we were try to really be carefully couch our, our projections which they're not really forecasts, are projections as to what this might mean and you know with with some eye to good communication it, it was used well as opposed to poorly which is what i really feared um Uh, The other thing is I I should add is that I've also done some other stuff that's not necessarily model related. We had a large project where we were looking at common respiratory illnesses in New York. It was called the Virome of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to understand rates of asymptomatic infection and clinical care seeking in the population. So, you know, we have these viruses like flu and parainfluenza and respiratory syncytial virus and the endemic coronaviruses that circulate all the time. Very often winter, not all of them, rhinovirus is very prevalent in the fall. Some of the para-influenzas are most common in the summer. But yeah. we wanted to know what fraction of people are actually laid up in bed, what fraction of people are not. You know, Their symptoms are mild enough that they'll go to work or even if they feel a little bad, they'll take some ibuprofen or some cold and flu medicine and they'll still go to work, you know? and they'll go shopping, they'll go to the movies, send the kids yeah. to school. Because to my thinking, that was a big part of what was supporting the transmission of these viruses, that there are a lot of silent, unknown uh, infections out there that are just taking the virus out in the community every day. Yeah. So we did some sampling um, in two ways. One is we went to a a major tourist attraction in New York City, and we collected medical histories, uh, symptoms for cold and flu over the last 48 hours, like, you know, could you rate from none, mild moderate, severe, what was your conditions in terms of a runny nose or a sore throat or a cough? We had nine of those symptoms. And then we also swabbed them. We took a, a Q-tip, stick it up their nose, it's a nasal pharyngeal swab, and we took it back to our lab, and yeah, I got a wet lab now. And we ran a respiratory viral panel assay on it and testing for 18 different common viruses. And what we found is, we did this and we got 2,500 participants over the course of about eight, nine months, is that there is a lot of shedding of respiratory viruses out in the community. In February, uh, one in nine persons was shedding a virus. Mm-hmm. And these are people who are out and about going and touring around. These were native New Yorkers, people visiting from other parts of the country of the world. And they were just going around and doing their business. Most of them were mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic, depending on how you wanna define asymptomatic. We also had another arm of this study where we enrolled people to be repeatedly swabbed. What we asked of them is we said, we would like you to keep a diary, a daily diary of your cold and flu symptoms. So same nine symptoms, rated none, mild, moderate, severe. And they would tell us this on a daily basis. They just enter it over their phone. And they'd also tell us if they'd taken medicine, stayed home from work or school, or gone to see a doctor because of their respiratory viral symptoms, those cold and flu symptoms. And then once a week, irrespective of how they felt, we would swab them. And so there we got a time series of symptoms, time series of rates of seeking clinical care, and a time series of infection shedding, shedding of virus. Mm.
0: Mm.
1: And what we saw was that the majority of infections were mild. And that included the flu and human metanumavirus, which is also pretty strong in its symptoms for some people. We also captured in that the four seasonal or endemic coronaviruses. So there are four coronaviruses Mm -hmm. that infect humans regularly. They have funny alphanumeric names. They're OC43, 229E, NL63, and HKU1. Mm. Um, And we captured over the year and a half that we did this, over two cold and flu seasons, we captured 135 infection episodes in individuals with one of these coronaviruses. Mm. And so an infection episode is one or more weeks continuously where you're shedding the same virus. Mm. And often for coronavirus, people would shed for multiple weeks. Well, these coronaviruses that are endemic, they tend to produce very mild cold and flu symptoms. And so only 4% of those 135 infection events resulted in somebody going to see a doctor because of those symptoms that they felt while they were shedding that virus. So one in 25 people were actually seeing a doctor. Now the way that we actually document respiratory viral illnesses is passively. We have sentinel clinics and hospitals and we wait for sick people to come to us. So that's reflective of the rate at which you would actually document it, that 96% of all endemic coronavirus infections are not gonna be documented.
0: Yeah. So that's a great transition to your new paper, which is essentially about the same issue with this one. So let me see if I can... I, I read it to the best of my ability. It's outside my field, but so, you know, it's, it's written uh, in as clear English as one can write a scientific paper. And um, what it basically says... I'm, I'm going to try to do it, and then you're going to correct me and explain the details. So I, what it says is basically this. It says that for every in in China, uh, maybe it was Wuhan specifically for the in the early in the early phase, okay, all of China, in all the early phases that were you know had been had already happened by the time you started writing the paper, which was a few weeks ago if i if I got it right, um, that your best calculations, your your attempt to do the kind of uh, comprehensive uh, data simulation process that we talked about earlier. Uh, indicate that for every one person that was uh, confirmed to have the coronavirus, the, the, the new one um, that's causing the COVID-19 uh, disease, that there were five or ten more people who were out there with mild symptoms or no symptoms um, and never were tested uh, or at least never were confirmed to have the disease but were shedding virus and contaminating others somewhat less effectively than the really sick people but because there's so many more people i mean up maybe as many as 10 times more weekly symptomatic people those are the main those people are the main way that the virus is spreading around and i have to like in my understanding of of epidemiology which is very 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 limited is that this it's able to do that while still being dangerous enough in some people to kill them so this is what makes it this global nightmare is that it's able to sort of spread undetected without hurting most people, but then still kill a- you know a large enough number of people that the total number is large. Is that basically what the paper says, or what did I miss or
1: you you got it that's basically it. This virus is is a threat and it is the most significant pathogen that we have faced as a world since the 1918 flu, and it's gonna be the most disruptive thing to world economies and our society since World War II, um, because it has that combination. It has a substantial amount of undetected, undocumented, mild infections that allow people to go about their business get on airplanes, take it to new communities, get on trains, get on public transportation, transmit it within their local communities, and geographically disperse it. And yet at the same time, it has a fat tail where there are extreme symptomological complications. People are subject to severe and critical infections, and it's a substantial number of them. This tends to be Focus mostly in the elderly and those with uh, chronic conditions, comorbidities, as they're called, things like cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, and chronic respiratory disease, people with those maladies, all of which are co-variable with age, you get older, you're more likely to have them, they're more at risk. Um, But that's exactly it. It is unfortunately in this sweet spot where the stealth transmission allows it to spread and disperse the way a respiratory virus can, which is really undetected and very efficiently because we don't recognize most of the infections. For China, we estimated that it's a six to one ratio. For every one documented case, case there's roughly six undocumented cases. Um, I think for the United States, because there's been less testing, it's more like 10 to one, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, yet at the same time, we have people who are becoming severely ill from it, Uh, and they're dying from it. There's a significant uh, rate of mortality. There's what's called a case fatality rate here. And there are different definitions of the case fatality rate, but how it's being used by the WHO and in the media is it's the number of deaths divided by the number of confirmed cases. All right. So right now it is at 3.5% globally, and it's variable when you go from country to country. So in Korea, it's like, 0.5%. In Italy, it's climbing up to almost 7% last I looked. Um, Now, you could answer and say, well, but if there are 10 times as many cases, then the case fatality rate is lower. And that's absolutely right. Then you're talking about not the case fatality rate, you're talking about the infection fatality rate. And the infection fatality rate, if it's one-tenth of 3.5%, let's say, is 0.35%, right? That is, you know that is 30 times higher than seasonal influenza. That is enormous. And the problem is, because this is a novel virus to which the whole world has susceptibility, it's going to spread and affect over a series of waves initially within the first year or two, 50 to 70, 80% of the population. You hear lots of people now parroting that line, Angela Merkel Merkel said it. Um, And that's what it will do unimpeded. And even if we try to control it, in the absence of a vaccine, that is what it will do. It's going to infect a tremendous number of people on the planet. Unfortunately, you know, and I'm not trying to fear here, but I've said this on, on many media outlets, you gotta be mm. clear-eyed about what this worst case is and why we're motivated to doing and enacting such extreme measures, such as the shelter in place that's taking place in San Francisco now and is being considered here in New York City as well. If you were to infect little over 50% of the world's population, right? That'd be 4.2 billion people. Let's go with that number. If one in seven of them are a confirmed case, they're severe enough, you're talking 600 million confirmed cases globally. If 3.5% of those die from that, of those confirmed cases, and I've now factored out the fact that there are all these undocumented infections, you're talking 21 million people dying in the next two years from this. Yeah. The additional complications are enormous, and we saw it take place in Wuhan, and we're seeing it in Italy right now, which is that we have very limited bed capacity in our hospitals to handle these kinds of surges that take place when you have something like this. Uh, Even for seasonal flu, we don't have enough beds very often. A couple years ago in New York, they had to activate the emergency medical corps because they ran out of doctors and nurses, let alone beds, to handle all the people coming in with seasonal flu because it was a bad year. Mm. You know, you'll see these things where patients are on gurneys with little tents around them in hallways rather than in rooms in the hospital. It's not a good yeah. situation. That's a yeah. you know, t- deterioration of patient care. Uh, it's poor infection control. You know, Italy right now has a case, uh, an, a situation where all other medicine has stopped. All routine service has stopped. The surgeons are in the ED practicing infectious disease internal medicine. It is all yeah. hands on deck, basically. And they're yeah. having to make decisions there. They're having to triage, which they haven't had to do since World War II, which is yeah. who's going to get the ventilator and who's not, which is often yeah. who's going to get the ventilator and who's going to die.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's, it's a disaster there, even though there are only a couple thousand deaths at this point. And we don't yeah. want it to spin even further out of control than that because we don't have the capacity to deal with it, and because it then infects your ability to deliver childbirths, babies, vaccines, dialysis, chemotherapy, all the other routine and emergency services that we rely on are going to completely get corrupted. And there are all these downstream health consequences of that as well.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely horrifying. I mean, I've been following as closely as I can, and the numbers for New York City... Are are just terrifying. I mean, the 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 projections, which I've seen, I'm sure you know them well and where they probably know where they came from. But they're they're given uncertainties. But even with the uncertainties, they're even the lower bounds are terrifying. With the number of beds and ventilators needed being, you know, 10, 20 times what what exists now. And even the the measures that we just heard that um, Trump administration has agreed to send one hospital ship to New York with a thousand beds is still might only be a drop in the bucket of what. uh...
1: Well, you know, to give you an example, that same same colleague of mine, Mark Lipsich, has a paper that's uh, a preprint is out on what's called Med Archive. And in it, they they look at Wuhan. And, you know, there's some scary things in this also, because it's an exponential growth process, you have to jump on it before it gets completely out of control, or it will completely get out of control. So, Restrictions were put in place in Wuhan, which is the epicenter where it got really bad in China, um, on January 23rd. It was four weeks later, four weeks later, that yeah. ICU bed demand peaked. Yeah. Okay, And it peaked at the level that represents the entire ICU bed capacity of the United States. Okay, yeah. This is a city of 11 million people that actually only had 6 million at the time because so many had left it. And they yeah. were at the entire ICU demand that is available normally in the United States. And we're, yeah. we're 340 million people. So we, we, have, we have some really daunting issues to deal with. And you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about issues that some people have brought up and I think they're worth discussing, which is, yeah, but if you're going to wreck the economy in the process yeah. of doing this, if you're going to drive, you know, 50% of small businesses out of business, if people yeah. don't have money beyond two, three months, how long are you going to keep this up? Because people can't feed themselves. Or right. If you're going to do something that is going to drive the country into an economic depression that may persist for years, if not a decade, is it worth it? Um, th- those are really hard questions that I think we need to confront as a society uh, and think about intelligently. I certainly know that people are thinking about it when they're thinking about, well, how do, what do we implement? How do we let people carry on? You know, you hear about cash infusions and all this stuff that we would like, you know, the government would like to deliver, and obviously that runs up the debt, and we're not here to talk economics, but these are the larger issues that we're going to have to contend with here, because either way, if we control it or don't control it, it is an enormous disruption that we're looking at. And uh, we're going to ask for people to have sacrifice in this country that we haven't seen since World War II.
0: Yeah, so I I, I was going to get to this eventually, but why not? since you brought it up, let's just go straight there. So, yeah, this is the issue. I mean, in New York City, you're already seeing people losing jobs, and we're only a few days into this, and the peak is at a minimum weeks away, I mean, maybe months. So how do we think about this? I mean, the... It's exactly what you said. I mean, I think the feeling now has been, and I've been sympathetic to it as well as I can understand the situation, and I'm no expert, but I'm following it obsessively, um, is that basically, at this point, we have to support the doctors and the nurses and the healthcare workers and the hospitals because they're on the front lines of this. They're going to be way beyond their capacity, both in terms of resources and their human capacity there some of them are going to get sick themselves and maybe even die so we just have to try to control it um because we absolutely need them so badly that we have you know we have to try to flatten the curve as they everybody's been saying and and reduce the rate of exponential growth to try to keep it um somewhere closer to manageable for the healthcare workers but you know we can say that now but and, you know, the government can give people money in various ways to try to um, deal with the economic fallout of it. But government can't prop up the economy for months or years if, you know, it's being shut down to the level that it's already happening in the United States in the last few days. It's just impossible. And, and, e- and economic depressions kill people too, in all kinds of ways. So, I mean, I guess, I guess the way to pose this as a question is is anybody now or has anyone in the past tried to model this situation in anywhere near the way that you've modeled the disease itself in other words i know that the economic and political factors are even less susceptible to the kind of quantitative analysis that we like to think of in physics you know you your you you said your stuff isn't doesn't have the laws of physics to back it up but this you know economics and politics and and social issues even less so but nonetheless now we're in a situation where governments and whoever else have to try to grapple with these awful decisions and what information do they have to draw on who's what guidance do they have or are they just flying completely blind and trying to balance these competing needs and this awful choice between killing people one way and killing them the other way
1: well you know you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And this has now become sort of an ethical, philosophical, religious question. And given that it's in the future and we don't know, it's really challenging to deal with this uncertainty. Uh, I don't know of any economic modeling. Well, I, I'm actually, I do know of a, some economic modeling that looks at this. And certainly we've even begun interfacing with some economists just looking at, you know, what is the cost of somebody in an ICU bed? And when you look at it, an unconstrained outbreak in New York City alone is going to cost $10 billion. You know, uh, that's just a drop of the country in terms of just, just the cost, let alone the deaths and the other things that are associated with it, and without consideration of all the other downstream health costs. On the other hand, you know, what what is an economic recession going to cost or a depression going to cost us? And what is that going to do to health uh, writ large? You know, I have to say... In a, in a sort of stepping back and trying to just look at it scientifically, I think we're going to have some natural experiments over the planet because we have 200 different political sovereign entities and countries roughly on the planet, and they're each going to try their own strategy for how they approach it. And I would not be surprised, particularly in developing world settings, unfortunately, if there's just not going to be adequate response at all in those settings, and others are going to try more authoritative extreme measures such as what the chinese did um and then others are going to try things in between and we're going to get to see what worked and what didn't unfortunately play out not in a computer model but in reality and that's going to tell us you know what who did best in terms of controlling it who wrecked their economy in an effort to avoid the the effects of it and did it succeed Um, So that, you know, that's sort of like a fatalistic hindsight view that we might have those of us looking back at it and analyzing it. Right now, we do need economic modeling of this. We need it to be done by many groups so we can see if there's any level of consensus because there is such high uncertainty in those models, much more so than in our forecast models, for instance, or certainly weather forecast models. Um, But the The larger question is, you know, what what is the end game of it all? Why are you doing it? What are you trying to accomplish? And will you succeed at it? Right? Um, So in the short term, you know, measures such as what the Chinese did, which is the most extreme at this point, and the most successful, though, the Koreans have been very successful as well, um, are going to prevent you from having those surges that overwhelm your hospital systems continually. So they will do that flattening of the curve. Uh, you know, that said, it's, it is ruining the economy in China. We don't get a lot of word of this. Apparently the divorce rate is going up because everybody's housebound. Uh, there are all sorts of consequences of it that are coming out. And, but then you have to say, but what's the longer game of it? Because once they relax this, the virus is just going to rebound. It's not right, gone right. completely. And even if they manage to eliminate it within China, it's just going to get reintroduced. You're not going to stop it. It doesn't care that way. So are you going to keep this up for a year, a year and a half, two years in the hopes that we're going to have an effective vaccine and roll that out and deploy it and give it to people? And then things will be safe and we'll come out from our caves and emerge into the light again and go back our ways. Well, for two years, how are people going to feed themselves? How do you maintain aspects of the economy? I mean, Amazon just announced they're hiring hundred thousand people because everybody's gonna be ordering things online. But if all the hardware stores and restaurants close, all the people who work there and all the owners of those of those barbershops and everything, they're gonna not have income. Where are they gonna get their income? Huge yeah, the ter- questions that we have to grapple with as a society.
0: Yeah, it's terrifying in New York City alone. I you know, the, the thought of what's gonna happen here. Uh yeah, it's hard to grapple with. But since you brought up the vaccine, why don't we talk about that? I mean, obviously, that's the thing that holds out hope is is vaccines or even uh, maybe clinical treatments that could help people who are sick even without um, stopping them from being infected. So the estimates we're seeing for the vaccine are you know, 12 to 18 months. You said two years. That's um, to get it done. And my understanding is that Actually, there's already some vaccines being tested, but that it's the testing and approval process that's what makes it take so long that you have to prove that it's safe and that the vaccine itself isn't going to kill people or severely harm them. And that means monitoring people for a long time. So I guess what I'm wondering is, I mean, if we're talking about these worldwide uh, doomsday scenarios um Might there not be some justification for letting at least some of the most at risk people, you know, try a vaccine before it's gone through that whole process? Because, you know, if they're likely to be killed from coronavirus and there's and maybe it's been gone through a couple of months of testing where you can show that it doesn't immediately harm people. Might there not be some justification for going live with these things sooner just because the alternatives are so mind bogglingly awful? Is that, is there,
1: that There certainly is justification, and I think some country that has it may do something like that. So, so the difficulty here with the vaccine production is that, unlike the flu for which we regularly make vaccines, and in 2009 it was a little over five months from the time from identification of the virus to the rollout and distribution of a clinically tested, FDA-approved, effective vaccine— you know, not perfectly effective, but effective.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, and that was for the 2009 pandemic flu, which was a mild illness. It wasn't that virulent.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, we really haven't made an effective coronavirus that we've ever di- vaccine that we've distributed. Um, I understand that there may have been some made for animals, and they did more harm than good, and they had to pull them, because yeah. uh, there are certain coronaviruses that affect, you know, cats or dogs, I think. I also heard that there may have been one made after the fact for SARS, uh, but it's never been rolled out broadly because there hasn't been need. So in order to get a vaccine approved, uh, you have to go through this extensive clinical testing. There are three phases to it, casually called phase one, phase two and phase three. Mm -hmm. Um, The generation of a candidate vaccine, lots have been generated already. And indeed this week I heard that one of them already started phase one trials and that's in yeah. a very small number of subjects uh where they're testing it for safety basic safety you know see if there's any acute adverse reactions and immunogenicity mm-hmm. does it induce uh antibody production uh in the person and does that antibody production then in a, in a petri dish react with the virus and bind to it which would be mm-hmm. what you're shooting for mm-hmm. um, If it makes it through that and everything looks good, they then go on to phase two where they look at um, the target population, the at-risk population. They would recruit more people then, and they would be people with comorbidities. They would be people who, um, uh, adults, older people, not adults, but older people, the elderly. And they would test it in that population. And then they have to see what the effect of that is, whether or not they're starting to get less cases of that in the people who received the vaccine versus those who got a placebo. Mm. Mm. And then lastly, they then take it to phase three, where they try it more broadly in the general population, an even larger group, and repeat that process. Mm. And it's only at that point, typically, when it passes all three of those phase trials, those clinical trials, that FDA is going to consider it for approval. These are extraordinary times. There's certainly, I would imagine, the possibility of accelerating that or skipping a step. There are dangers in doing that, and they have been seen multiple times. And, you know, if your aim as a doctor is to first do no harm, you need to be very, very careful. Um, Because you start administering hundreds of millions, if not billions of doses of this worldwide, and this has a 0.1% adverse reaction rate in people. That's a lot of people, right? right? So got to worry about that you really do need to worry about that
0: and what about but what about the prospects for drug treatments that just make the symptoms less bad is that is there any hope there
1: there is hope there you know the first thing that they did was they took all these drugs that were designed for other maladies you know HIV or dengue or something like that or diarrheal mm-hmm. disease and they just threw them at the patients and mm-hmm. because they're FDA approved and they can give them and they know they're safe they say let you know let's try to save the patient's life and see what happens not great Mm. evidence that any of them are particularly effective as far as i know Um, Mm. maybe that'll change but in the meantime they try to develop all sorts of other therapies for flu we have some antivirals that have some effect at shortening the duration of Mm. um, the infection Uh, there Mm. are also these other Uh, types of things like monoclonal antibodies, which monoclonal just means a uh, antibody that you replicate over and over again, that you synthetically generate, that you can give to somebody with the infection that will do what an antibody, a vaccine would induce and your body produces does. It will bind to the virus and help you clear it. So you can give them this therapy of it. Other ones are called passive immunotherapy, and that's where you take the antibodies that somebody who has been infected, you filter them out and you give them to somebody else in the hopes that that will help them. So there are a number of therapeutic options that may improve point of care and reduce that case fatality rate uh, as this thing progresses. I should also add that, you know, there, we don't necessarily have one strategy or one thing that we're going to do where we're all going to be sheltering in place for nine months or 10 months in the hopes that there's going to be an improved therapeutic and a vaccine rolled out, Right.
0: Yeah. I am that frankly is, I mean, that's what people are talking about, but it just seems unthinkable. I mean, I think even a couple of weeks is going to be a catastrophe in New York City.
1: Yeah, exactly. And everywhere else. But uh, on the other hand, maybe we can do some kind of rolling thing where people have to shelter in place for a few weeks and then try to return to the economy for a few weeks. And then so, and then the virus will cycle, but we'll always keep it at manageable levels within the community so that, patient services and hospital resources can be maintained and patient care can and beds are available, right? Uh, yeah. That in and of itself recognizes that you're gonna put people at risk, obviously. But you know, there's risk all the time. People die from the seasonal flu all the time. We die from car accidents, lightning strikes, all sorts of things. We have to be, again, realistic about this. Uh, so we may need to make a tough decision like that where we're going to try to, you know, basically try to not devastate the economy try to buffer it so that we give opportunities for people to go out and about and resume some level of normalcy for a while and then say all right you got to peel back because we see we're starting to get a rise in cases we peel back we see a rise in cases it peaks it drops and then maybe we'll do it again something like that is is actually being considered as one strategy whether or not this is the type of thing that will actually be implemented whether it has you know, long-term consequences, we don't know. You know, there's another issue also, which is that there's um, the coronaviruses that are endemic, those four ones I mentioned earlier, Mm. they have a a marked seasonality, just like the flu does. We don't know why, nobody's really studied it in detail. Um, Is it to do with crowding, mixing, schools being in session, not in session, or is it due to temperature and humidity, you know, humidity just like the flu? So because they have this seasonality in temperate regions, it's possible that we will catch a bit of a break in, let's say, July, August, Um, and that we may get a little bit of reprieve. A lot of things would have to align. It would have to be sensitive. This virus is more transmissible than the flu typically is, so it may not be enough to really curb transmission entirely, even if it's more humid and it's sensitive to that. Um, We don't know. We don't know.
0: Okay, that's the end of the first interview that Jeff and I recorded on Wednesday, March 17th, and now we'll start with what we recorded today as I record this, Tuesday, March 24th. Okay, so just to recap, uh, we spoke a little less than a week ago, and uh, you kindly agreed to do it again after a tech uh, problems on my part caused us to uh, lose a little bit off the end of the interview. but. As long as we're here, we can take the opportunity to sort of update a little bit, since a lot has happened in the last week as this uh, emergency moves so fast. In particular, so New York City's now been in some form of social distancing, lockdown, whatever you want to call it, for something like a week and a half, 10 days or so. Uh, It got more intense over the weekend with um, stronger order from the governor shutting down more businesses and putting more restrictions on on people. And then, uh, apropos of the discussion we had in the last interview about the trade-off between the public health needs for social distancing and the economic toll of closing so many businesses, the new thing that's happened in the last day or so, the last news cycle, is that the president and a bunch of other spokespeople – on the right of the political spectrum have been already talking about uh, relaxing these in the relatively near future, in in two weeks or something. And so I just wanted to uh, say, first of all, that when we discussed this last time, the trade-off between economics and and health, uh, I think I put it that we have to do it for the, we have to do these social distancing measures and take the economic uh, losses to protect the healthcare workers. And as I listened back to that over the weekend, I just want to add uh, to get my own position clear. It's also to save lives. I mean, the public health system being overwhelmed is going to, is going to kill huge numbers of people. So, so my own view is I'm tremendously opposed to the president already talking about um, backing down off of these, but I just wanted to get your perspective on these latest developments and, and, and the, the tension between the economics and the, and the health needs for, for these measures?
1: You know, uh, a colleague sent to me a line that I'm going to, uh, I don't know if I'm quoting him or somebody else he quoted. It sounds like somebody, some, it's just sort of an adage that's typically said, and that is that for something like this, the battle is won in the community and it's lost in the hospital. Uh, the need is extreme to actually um, capture uh, and identify infections out there in the broader community to actually recognize where they are, identify them, isolate them, quarantine, and minimize transmission as best as possible. Otherwise, we will be overrun by this. And it's, it's not going to be just something that, oh, it's going to run through us for six, eight weeks and we'll be fine. It will devastate communities, the scope of it when it hits us, if it hits us hard like a full force wave. On the other hand, I, I do think there is merit to the argument and discussion of how long can we do this? Not necessarily in a, a rah-rah proud way, but in terms of the, the underserved communities in our country and their ability to actually have the money at hand with which to feed themselves. Uh, the people are going to be scared. They're gonna be idle. They're going to be uncertain about what the future holds for them. And that is not a very good cauldron to have in terms of allowing people to feel the security that they have, that their things are going to be all right. Already unemployment rates have skyrocketed and the disruption to the economy is enormous. And that kind of financial, psychological, and emotional toll is, is quite acute. We can't not ignore it. So things have to be done to try to remedy that. And unfortunately, I believe we're between a rock and a hard place here because I don't know the economics of it well, as I probably said last time. And I can't tell you specifically whether the types of measures that would be required to flatten this curve and to manage it so it doesn't overwhelm us, so that we can deliver health care and we minimize loss of life uh, and the toll that that loss of life would have uh, are worth it.
0: I mean, there there is a legitimate, you know, the, the debate that's going on between the public health officials and... Uh, and many state governors and and so on saying we have to we may have to be continuing these measures for a long time, and the president and others saying you know it's already they 're already feeling like it's too long and they you know it shouldn't be more than two weeks I mean there is a legitimate debate there between is what you're saying I think between the um, the public health need to isolate people to contain the disease and the and the need to consider the economic damage which is also going to cost life and and well-being and and health in the long run all those you know there is a legitimate debate there it's just happening uh in a very politicized way and and in my view it's premature for the president to start talking about two weeks i mean in other words in new york city we might be peaking in two weeks you know we might have you know, tens of thousands of deaths in two weeks, and, you know, we just can't, um, it's just too soon to be telling people that they can think about relaxing, at least in the hard-hit areas like this.
1: I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, the, the, the biggest frustration is it's done in the absence of information. It's done in the absence of information that's informed. It's done in the absence of being really understanding what the consequences are. will give you one example, and I think we did talk about this last time, which is that there are delays in the system baked in in the sense that the measures that were put in place by the governor of New York state uh, just two days ago, right? Those effects are not going to be seen for another week at the earliest. And that will only be in confirmed cases at the rate at which they're confirmed. So how effective the measures have been is something that we can't even gauge now. And whether we're turning around and flattening this. Uh, The the signals that the, the president is putting out there is that, You know, not that it's very cavalier look, and it just says effectively, well, let's just return to the economy and we're not going to try to deal with this. That's what that message at that time says. Now, he's very protean. He's going to say many, many things over the coming days that are going to be entirely inconsistent because that's his M.O., right? So what it means and what it actually implies for realistic policy supported by the rest of the governing structures, I think, is an open question. I think it's very, very challenging to respond to this administration in particular because they are so inconsistent in their messaging and they're not careful and measured and they shoot from the hip and they don't use information the way we would like them to see the factual information employed and used. I guess what I'm recognizing is that I don't know what the economic consequences of this are. If we were to actually put in place the measures that would be needed to control it at a community level so that our healthcare systems aren't overrun, so that we can keep people alive as best as possible. I don't know how long we would need to do it. I don't know if we're talking, you know, six months. I don't know if we're actually talking two years even. Crazy numbers like that. And that is a lot to ask for society, and it's a lot to realistically expect that people will comply with it. Now, there are, there are a number of proposals out there that, well, you know let's get some serological tests up and running. So serological tests are tests where they take your serum and they check to see if you've developed antibodies for a particular pathogen. They develop a serological test for SARS-CoV-2. They can tell whether or not you've been infected because you've developed antibodies that are effectively binding against it. It would be an indication that you have already been infected with the virus, And maybe you could return out into the workplace and go about your business, help with response efforts, reopen restaurants. People who are confirmed to have antibodies against the virus could maybe return to the community and normal economic activity without actually being a threat to other people because they've already been infected. That is actually predicated on the notion, unfortunately, that people aren't infected repeatedly. There is some evidence that that can happen with other coronaviruses, not this one. It hasn't been around long enough for us to know. But for other coronaviruses, it may be possible to be infected multiple times. And we have seen evidence of that. And the question then is, uh, are you going to put people back out in the community who are going to not actually be contributing to the herd immunity, as it were, but are going to be susceptible to repeat infection because of this effect that's called waning immunity or immune escape. And then they can transmit it onto somebody who's never been exposed before who could have a severe reaction. You know, unfortunately, we're, we're, we're not flying blind here, but there's enough that we don't know. And we're in a situation that is dissimilar enough from anything else that we've really had to deal with for a very long time that... We don't know what will work fully and what the consequences are for other facets of our society as we implement these control measures. I think that throwing your hands in the air and saying we cannot sacrifice the economy is a very cold calculation. And we damn well better have a lot of support for it before we go and do something that rash that is going to essentially sentence a lot of people to die and sentence our healthcare systems to complete collapse under the strain that they will be facing.
0: Yeah, I mean, plus, I mean, you—it's not necessarily a choice you actually have. I mean, if you—if you do that, uh, you know, relax the measures for the economy, quote unquote, you know, and and huge numbers of people start to die, and the public health system does collapse, the economy is not going to improve, you know. So. so
1: you're right. That's a shock to the economy. It's not like it's buffered to the side, this idea that, well, the healthcare system collapses. That's not a big deal for the economy. No.
0: Right. People yeah. will be terrified and all that. I mean, not to dwell on the politics. I mean, neither of us is experts, and we could both, you know, spend a long time being angry. But it's also the case that the federal government doesn't really control these containment measures. They've all been done at the state and local level. So it's not as though the president can actually turn them off, even if he wants to. He could, he could try to bludgeon people by denying aid or something, but that's about it, as far as I can see.
1: You're right. I mean, what he's doing, though, is he's, he's giving a little bit of cover to the governors who don't want to do things about it. You know, I've heard that the governor of Idaho is very cavalier about it and doesn't really want to address it. Uh, and if the president's out there doing that, that gives cover for them to do it. And this gets back to the idea that, you know, more than anything, we would really could use consistent messaging from the administration, and that has not been in place.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. Okay, I I have a couple of science questions um, based on things that you just raised just now, just to, I think they're relatively, they probably have simple answers. But the first one is, you mentioned the serological test. Just to be clear, that doesn't exist yet for this virus, is that right? That doesn't exist yet, no. And what's the typical, I mean, what would be the range of possibilities for how long that might take? I don't
1: think it's too long. I think that can be generated quickly. Uh, It's probably not that hard to do, and I imagine it's going to be out and available pretty soon. Uh, That's like a diagnostic, you know, these test kits that we have to see if you are infected. Uh, Those types of things are sort of standard repertoire uh, for looking at what's going on virologically, and in this case, immunologically. Uh, The more difficult and challenging things are developing therapeutics that will be effective at treating the disease when you have it, or a vaccine that is effective at actually preventing you from getting it.
0: We talked about that last time. I mean, the other thing about the sort of letting people back who have had it and may have immunity, besides the the scientific problem that we don't know if they'll get infected again, it raises all kinds of strange social and ethical problems. Like, what are you going to do? Put Make people carry an ID that says that they've had it? Make people wear some kind of marker? Will people tell the truth? It's a, it's a whole, uh, you know, the, what are the incentives? It's a whole scary um, thing. But I think uh, that's for, uh, you know, some ethicists to debate when it seems like it might be happening. Um, The other thing is you were talking about how to control it. We have to do what I think is being called testing and tracing, sort of trying to follow the infections around. My understanding, at least in New York City, is that the current guidance is actively not to do that in the sense that people who don't have serious symptoms are being told not to get tested because there aren't enough tests. So, in other words, this is a hypothetical that we'd like to do at some time in the future when things are more under control. You're not advising that we should be doing this now. Or, are you, uh, or do you think the uh, current guidance in New York City is wrong?
1: Well, it's wrong, but it's limited by logistics. And that's the problem. There's not the capacity to do it. Therefore, it's a moot point. Uh, there are, I have heard some rapid diagnostic tests being developed. So right now it takes two, three days to get laboratory confirmation on a, on a swab taken from somebody who's potentially sick with this disease. Uh, there are rapid diagnostics for other um, respiratory viral pathogens, such as influenza and respiratory syncytial virus that take 45 minutes. They're, 45, they're, they're point of care action. And if those can be developed, and I hear they are being developed and deployed en masse, That would be an amazing tool that will allow us to actually start going into the community more comprehensively testing people who are seeking care and get a better handle on what's going on uh, and inform people who need to be uh, isolating themselves or quarantining themselves as the case may be.
0: And then, so then you could imagine that, you know, if we get through the next few weeks to a couple of months, let's take New York City as, as the case in point because... We seem to be rapidly becoming the global epicenter of this thing uh, pretty soon, looks like. Um, Then if we get through this first peak and it starts to decline, as looks like is beginning to happen in Italy and has already happened in China, then at some point when things have improved a bit and settled down, one could imagine going to a more focused approach with testing and tracing and and letting some of the economy come back, you know, uh, apart from that.
1: That would be... uh... I'm not going to say the ideal, but that would be a hopeful way forward that would potentially minimize the economic damage, allow you to continue monitoring and tracing what's going on. Uh, it will require an adjustment on a part of our society. Uh, it will require people to be, um, you know, sacrifice some of their individuality, some of their civil liberties in order to actually help the common good. That is to get tested when you're asked to get tested. That is to actually isolate or quarantine yourself if you've come in contact with somebody who's been infected. Uh, it's really important that people comply with these these strategies. Otherwise, it'll just spin out of control again. That's that's the central issue. You know, we don't want to get it under control only to have it spin out of control and try to ramp everything up again. That's going to be really disruptive as well.
0: I want to close with some sort of pragmatic questions, uh, and I'm a little self interested here, but you know, for those of us. Uh, here in New York and other places that are under, under strong uh, strong restrictions, uh, so right now, what I've been reading is that what would work the best is if somebody in the household gets infected, uh, that person really should ideally be away from their family members. There was an article in The Times this weekend saying what we should have is places to quarantine people, you know separately. But we currently don't have those places. So right now, you know if I get sick, I just have to st- I'm living here with my wife and, and son. I just have to stay here. And in a New York apartment, you know, keeping myself in one room that they never enter is not really going to happen. So the pragmatic guidance is we just do our best, right? And we have to assume that if one person gets it in the household, the other people have it and they should quarantine themselves, but um, as best they can. But, you know, if you run out of food, somebody has to put on a mask and go to the store and so on, right?
1: Absolutely right. I mean, certainly one might hope that you could call somebody else to go do the shopping for you and drop it at your doorstep, for instance that might be something that you would do. Uh, I do think we have to think of households as the unit of isolation and quarantine, unfortunately, uh, that in, you know, you're not most likely going to be able to segregate yourself from your family. Uh, even if you live in a house outside the city or a big house in the city, uh, it may be difficult to actually keep yourselves apart. But within that unit, you are really quite removed from the rest of society. Normally you have many, many more contacts in a day in, in, during normal commerce,
0: and so then, uh, what we talked about last time, and some of the material that we lost was um, you uh, sort of trying to get a little more clarity on what we know about how the virus actually spreads. I mean, we've, we're all being told about um, uh, social distancing and how it's spread through droplets that we're talking or coughing on each other. That clearly is a a way that it spread. We're being told to wash our hands all the time on surfaces. Um, is there anything you want to say that you know, anything that's not getting out or, or anything that is getting out incorrectly? Or do you want to clarify what the uncertainties are on, on transmission? Just so people, I mean, the guidelines that are given out are very simple for the public, but, but it, there's always value in understanding more.
1: Of course. So, you know, just to recap it, there, there are a number of ways that respiratory viruses can be transmitted. Uh, certainly, there's one called direct. You know, if, if I'm sick and I kiss my wife, I can give that to her because I'm shedding it in my oral nasal mucosa. Uh, that's minor here. Um, the next is droplet. When you're coughing or sneezing um, or speaking, you tend to spray droplets and you can hit people in the face with them. It happens all the time. And that's a means of actually transmitting the virus because in those droplets, if you're shedding virus because you're sick, You can actually transmit it through that way and actually transfer it to somebody else. Third way is that some of those droplets are going to be large, and they're going to settle out onto surfaces, and they're going to settle on tables and doorknobs on your hands and whatnot, and you're going to transfer them to things, uh, phones and whatnot, common objects that other people will touch. When they touch them, we tend to touch our faces quite a lot. Uh, We can eat with our hands, we touch our faces, we rub our eyes, uh, and... um, as a consequence of that, we can transfer the virus to ourselves, and that's another route of transmission. That's Those objects on which it lands, those are often referred to as fomites. Now, that's the reason why they tell you to wash your hands quite a lot, because that would actually remove the viruses from your hands and prevent you from actually transferring it to your face and uh, contaminating or infecting yourself, as it were. Uh, the last one is airborne, so when you cough or speak or even breathe, your Uh, emitting these droplets out, and if you're sick, they're going to have virus in them, and some of them are going to be very tiny and or small enough that they're going to evaporate down to a size scale that they're going to be aerosolized or remain aloft uh, on the turbulence in the air. Those airborne virus can then be inhaled by somebody else, and they can get them deep in their lungs and get an infectious dose that way. The reality is we don't know how respiratory viruses are transmitted. We haven't documented it. And this is a point of contention that a lot of people argue particularly in the context of flu Uh, they've talked a lot about is it predominantly by airborne route or is it predominantly by that indirect fomite route when this coronavirus came out people started talking about well it's all droplets that it's droplets that that's where it's going and i'm not really quite sure where this dogma came out there had been a few studies uh done on some endemic coronaviruses to suggest that maybe droplets were a mode of transmission but I don't see any information that's sufficient to characterize this as one mode or another. So if you want to protect yourself from droplets, that's where this whole six feet distancing thing is important. Keeping apart from people because we're all emitting plumes of droplets. And if we're infected and shedding, we're going to be contagious and putting them in that plume that we're emitting. And six feet will keep you away from the average cough. People don't tend to sneeze when they get this disease because it just doesn't produce upper respiratory, uh, runny nose conditions and runny nose and such and sneezing. It tends to produce a cough. Um, and certainly when you speak, it'll keep it. So that's why they talk about distancing when you're near anywhere near people out in public that you keep apart. Uh Again, washing your hands is for the indirect route, the fact that it may settle on objects and you want to keep your hands clean and you don't want to transfer the virus to your nose, mouth, eyes, face, etc. cetera. Uh, but the last one, airborne, has gotten a lot less attention. Uh, the reality is we just don't know if it's transmitted that way, and it's problematic if it is because it means that, you know, in particular, somebody can go in a room, of, well, both that and the fomites, offer this Problem that you don't have to overlap in space and time in order to transmit the virus from one person to another. Somebody can enter a store and they're sick and they can put droplets in the air that are small, they can put large droplets all over the surfaces, and then other people can come in hours later and acquire the infection from that person, having never actually overlapped with them immediately. Um, So the question is what do you need to do that will be enough that will reduce your risk of transmission? Look, certainly by social distancing and some of the other measures that are in place, including the closing of lots of business and restaurants, you're reducing the opportunities to overlap with people, even though you might not necessarily need to overlap in space and time. The fact that many of us are spending so much more time at home, that's less time in the community where we have opportunity of acquiring infection. So how the control measures map onto a reduction of the transmission force that's out there is hard to assess in the absence of a, a real concrete understanding of what the dominant mode of transmission is, or if there are multiple dominant modes that have to be considered simultaneously. So that's a little bit of a conundrum here, and it really affects our ability to know how effective a particular invention, intervention will be, uh, and it hopefully is informing uh, the public uh, messaging that's going out there when they say keep apart from people six feet apart, wash your hands frequently. The airborne thing is more challenging. There isn't too much you can tell an individual to do about cleaning their air. Uh, So, you know, maybe open the windows and ventilate a little bit if somebody comes in who you don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this because my wife works for the New York City Parks Department and everybody's out in the parks now because it's the only thing you can, you know, do outside basically, and everybody needs to get some fresh air. And the governor came uh, over the weekend, uh, to some city park, and saw a lot of people who weren't sufficiently distanced, and got upset, and told the parks department to come up with a plan right away for how they're going to keep people apart. And it's got me thinking about these social distancing rules. You and I had a, you know, had a conversation offline about it, where you know people are getting very paranoid about the six feet, and you know you can mostly be six feet from people, but if you're in a New York City park and you're walking along the walkway, you sort of pass somebody, you might only be three feet for a second. My impulse is sort of not, as somebody who studies flows in the atmosphere, is not to worry that much about it when we're outside, if somebody doesn't sort of cough on you. But I guess the way to put it is, if six feet is what we really need outside, then probably it's not enough inside, because is contained much more, and, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean to you know ask for a much longer answer on that. But just to say that six feet is a very rough guideline, there's a lot we don't know, and it's important to be conservative, but at the same time... Um, Yeah, inside seems the more worrying thing and and all the hand washing is important is what you're saying, but not because we really know you're going to get it off surfaces, but because we just don't know. And so you don't want to take the risk.
1: Yeah, it's precautionary. I mean, look, there are a few things that we can say that we do know. Uh, One is that they have certainly documented how far the average sneeze or the average cough or how far droplets go when you're speaking and breathing. So the six feet is informed by these time-lapse images of actual coughs in this instance is the thing we really need to focus on. So there's some information there. But other than that, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, when you look at what's going on in the parks, if people are distancing better, that's, that's important. But we spend 90% of our time indoors in the developed world, regardless of whether or not the only place we have to go is a park. So the transmission action almost undoubtedly is happening indoors. Got to be mindful of what's going on there. Have to think about what you're doing, particularly if you're going to the grocery store or the pharmacy. You know, don't touch a lot of things. Wash your hands afterwards. Be mindful of keeping distance from people in the store. And uh, maybe ask them to open the windows and ventilate things, you know.
0: Yeah, in other words, worry about that much more than you worry about the park, although be careful in the park too. So the last thing, just one very selfish, pragmatic question. This is a debate I've been having with my family, including my son, his biology major in college. Can I order takeout or can I not?
1: Uh, You know, that's a question, and I I don't know the answer to that. Uh, We have not been doing it because I'm thinking, well, you know, the guy who delivers it, what does he have? What is he putting on it? How many people have handled the the pizza box or the takeout containers or whatever it is? Uh, you know, you don't know. Uh, I don't want to put takeout out of business here. It's really important that people have food services and they can order it. Understand that anytime you're interacting with more people, there is some risk there. And that's not to make everybody paranoid, but just to understand that it's there. Uh, but on the other hand, I think getting takeout is less of a risk than going to the grocery store. The grocery store is an enormous convergence center right now, and uh, we have to do it. I've done it, and uh, you've know you got to be careful when you're doing it and try to make it rapid and don't dawdle and wash your hands and don't touch surfaces and maybe ask them to open a window, as I said.
0: And the risk from takeout is from the containers itself, right? Am I correct that hot food will itself kill the virus in the food itself? Is that true?
1: I believe so. I mean, I can't say for certain, but you know, like a pizza oven has got to be hot enough to break it down. Uh, most viruses, respiratory viruses out in the environment are kind of wimpy when it comes to high temperatures. So I would think it actually denatures them and inactivates and, and them mostly. The box is my greater concern. Yes.
0: Right. But you can pick up the box with gloves or something. I don't know. <laughs> just
1: just pour bleach on the cardboard container and hope it doesn't hit the food. And go from there, you know, uh, you
0: know. All right. Okay. Anything else you want to say? You advising the government these days?
1: Uh, I've had some calls with the government. Uh, I've spoken. I've recently spoken with a couple governors. Um, We're trying to provide projections for uh, a number of uh, government agencies. We've been doing so with New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. We passed it on to places like the State Department in New York State. We're trying to develop uh, more models that we can regularly give projections. Um, you know, at some point, the projections may not be that useful because we're just going to be trying to keep up with things. Hopefully, that doesn't get to that stage and uh, we can continue to monitor what's going on, see what's effective around the world and use the methods that have been effective and are as minimally as disruptive as possible. That's my hope.
0: All right. Well, I think I've kept you long enough. I know you've got important things to do. Thanks so much, Jeff, for doing this. I really appreciate it. We're going to try to get it out soon, but thanks again.
1: My pleasure, Adam.
0: It's a deeply scary moment we're all living through, but information and understanding and communication are essential to get us through it. And I'm so appreciative that Jeff Shaman took some of his time with all the other demands on it to talk to me about it. And I hope you get something out of it as I did a little bit more understanding of what we're living through here. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duoton Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Dana Ham. although Dana didn't get a crack at this episode, so don't blame her for anything that sounds like it could have used some editing. And our audio engineer is Chrissy Lassiter. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. This is Deep Convection. I'm Adam Sobel. Thanks for listening.